Good morning. It's good to see everybody and welcome. We're glad that you're here as you're making your way in. I hope you got a bulletin and uh, ordered a service to be able to follow along with. We want to encourage you as we go through the service to join us so that you can be a part as well. This morning, I'm going to take a moment to just read, if you would just listen to the special meditation from the Valley of Vision. Jehovah God, thou creator, upholder, proprietor of all things, I cannot escape from thy presence or control, nor do I desire to do so. My privilege is to be under the agency of omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, grace. Thou art love with more than parental affection. I admire thy heart, adore thy wisdom, stand in awe of thy power, abase myself before thy purity. It is the discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish my fear. Allure me into thy presence, help me to be well and confess my sins. We hope this morning as we do that, we'll come through this process of worship that he calls us to and leave this place a changed person. So let's begin, if you would, if you're able, stand with us as we sing our opening hymn, Holy, 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 hymn number 100 in the Red Hymn Book.
Amen. You may be seated, and I hope you got a bulletin. I'll let you keep up with all the announcements that are regular. Let me just remind you as you read through those, the Bible studies that are starting back up and the ministries that are taking place. And again, uh, be praying about uh, deacons that you would like to nominate and serve, and we'll put out a box next week, and we'll have things for you, but we'll be taking those through the end of February. We do have some that'll be uh, going through training as we speak and begin that process as well. But tonight, it's not in there, I know, but tonight is the installation service. We're commissioned by a presbytery to put forth elders, ruling elders and teaching elders from different churches to be able to function for the presbytery. And so tonight, we invite you back at 6 p.m. Uh, we'll have a special service to install David as our assistant pastor here. And then afterwards, some finger foods. Now, I know it'll be cold. I can already promise you that. I can just tell. I have this feeling about me that it's going to be cold tonight. And so just come, know that it's going to be that way, and we're going to fellowship and warm up on the inside. We still have our children's ministry going on, so if you do have children, please bring them. And parents, if you usually drop your kids off and then go back home, well, tonight you can take them and then come up and be a part of our installation service as we celebrate David being here. It's a way that the Presbytery oversees their churches, is all of our pastors, as you know, if you're familiar with Presbyterianism, but if you're not, all of our pastors go through a process with Presbytery to be examined and to be accepted and to be installed so that everything has an oversight as we practice this plurality of leadership and accountability in the church. And so please come tonight at 6 p.m., bring some finger foods, whatever you would like, and we'll just fellowship afterward. Uh, the children, when they are getting out at about 7, we're going to invite them to just come on downstairs with us as well, and we'll just all have a fellowship time together. Um, but let me also remind you, if you haven't seen it, I was told to announce it's kind of interesting, new for some of you, but Pastor David's helped us with our session, put out a summary each month. And so Steve, our clerk, if you didn't see that in the blast this last month that comes out, each month when our session meets, we'll put together a summary of our meeting. We'll put that on the blast, and you guys will have an opportunity to see what it is the session is dealing with and what they're working on and how they're moving forward and, and what it is that they're doing to help minister to you since you've elected them to lead you. And we're going to encourage our deacons. You met Matt last week, but we're going to encourage them the same thing, that when they meet, to put together a summary. David will help them, and then you'll have a summary of your deacons and their servanthood. And so your ordained offices will be able to communicate to you regularly on what it is they're dealing with and what it is that they're facing and how it is that you can help us as we go forward. So please look for those as the upcoming months uh, come around. Uh, other than that, again, I'll let you see the announcements. We do need help in Sunday school always, especially during the winter, the sicknesses. So if you're willing to help teach, whether it's a preschool class, a children's class, adult class, please let me know or call the office and say, hey, I'm available if you need a sub or an assistant. Uh, I know many of you have plugged in, but especially during the winter, we never know from one day to the next, and we don't want you to feel bad if you're sick and not feeling well. We understand if you can't teach, but it's nice to have subs that we're able to just plug right in. So please let us know if you're able to help with that as well. But other than that, let me call us to worship so we can continue for the reason God's called us here, not for all the ministries we're putting together, but to come before him and to be touched by him and to worship him. And so if you would stand with me and uh, we're gonna begin a process as we pray and confess our sins together this week a little differently is a congregational confession of sin and assurance. But let me 
begin by calling us to worship. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to set aside those worldly things, plans, preparations, and all that we have already set busy on this Lord's day. Lord, we live in such a way that the day becomes so normal when we leave this place. And yet, Lord, help us to take the time to set it aside, to make it holy, so that it's the whole day given unto your service and not just a few hours or moments. Lord, as you call us to, together this morning, help us to realize our need for forgiveness, our need for your cleansing, and to prepare us for our future home with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would join me in our congregational confession of sin and assurance, you will see there where it says all, and I will read together the minister. So if you would join me as we confess our sins and find assurance together, join me. Hear our words and our groanings, O Lord. Give attention to our cry for mercy. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. But, O oh Lord, we are evildoers. We are boastful, deceitful, and bloodthirsty. By your mercy alone, by the abundance of your steadfast love, may we enter your house. Because of your Son, O oh Lord, let us find refuge in you. Take away our sins and let us sing for joy. Cover us with your favor as with a shield. For the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. And as we continue in worship, let's sing together, Man of Sorrows, here in your bulletin.
Amen. You may be seated. And as we come to a time of prayer for all of our needs, Pastor Dave would normally come and help us, but him and Suzette are down with all kinds of congestion and unable to speak. She's not here with us, so we want to remember her as well. And we have many others that have been out and sick, and uh, so we want to remember them in prayer as well. But as I lead us in prayer, I ask you to... If you need to open up your red hymnal, and in just a moment as we close, I'll ask you to join me in the Lord's Prayer together. But let me take us to the throne of grace and just pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you with all kinds of needs, burdens, and concerns. And yet, Lord, when we come with those, we realize the most precious ones are the ones that deal with your children. We get so caught up in the things that are wrong within our lives, the things that we have, the places we need to be, the things we need to accomplish, and many times overlook your children, the ones that need us most. Lord, this morning we pray for those, your children, those that are struggling with all kinds of treatments. Lord, whether it's illnesses, sicknesses, cancers, Lord, we have many in our church that are needing the strength and the ability to move forward and go on. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, that we would find the time, the effort needed to to make them feel better, to provide the needs that they have physically or even emotionally while they sustain this journey they're on. Lord, we pray for the doctors, the many who will minister to your children, many of those who don't even believe. Yet, Lord, maybe you would use our sickness, our disease, to reach them, that it would be through our illnesses that they would come to see the truth. It would be through our suffering, our shame, in this body that we have, that they would begin to see the importance of the life that follows. Lord, I do pray for all of us who are so busy this time of year, already making plans for the new year to come, that, Lord, you would help us to make plans for you, that this would be the year that you do become first. This would be the year that all the promises we've always made will actually come to realization. The so many times that we've put you aside, that other things have cropped up, that other events have taken place, and we just keep pushing you farther and farther back. Lord, let it be this time that we realize the importance of discipleship, what it means to truly serve you, what it means to count the cost, what it means to make a choice. Lord, help us this morning as we minister to your children, make those costly decisions. It may take something from us in order to minister to them. Lord, we pray again for your children who are fighting wars, those that love you as much as we do and yet are called to a point in which they will give their lives and they may not return home and they may not be able to disciple their own children anymore. That, Lord, you would place the burden on our hearts through prayer, through giving, and through service to surrender our service to further the kingdom and to do what we can to help those children who will no longer have a father or a mother or a grandfather. Lord, all these we bring before you because they're not the things that matter most. They're your children that matter most to us. And that you would just help us this morning more than anything to begin focusing more on people than all the needs that we have ourselves. Lord, I do thank you for those who've gone through surgery. Lord, I thank you for those who've gone uh, now through recovery, those who are going through rehabilitation. 
that, Lord, the surgeries are over, and yet now we need the strength for the journey going forward, that you would continue to lead us, guide us, and direct us. Lord, above all this, we realize that it is only because we're your children that we're able to come to the throne of grace. It is through your son, Jesus Christ, that we're able to come to that curtain that was torn, to enter into that access of that holy place, there beside the Father where you are, where we too can come as a body and pray together as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I would like to ask if our ushers would please come forward and help take up our offering here this morning. Continue to worship and prepare our hearts. Let's sing together. Here is love.
be seated, and I hope that you brought your Bibles along with you so that you can follow along. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been studying through Mark and the power of discipleship and the journey that he is taking us on to quickly see our need to follow him. And this morning in chapter 9, he finishes up by putting us on the spot about what it's going to take to truly follow Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we race through a passage, I want you to realize I'm only going at the speed of Mark. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a fast pace. It's a constant reminder that no matter what we do, it's about our commitment to Jesus Christ. I could begin the service this morning by simply asking you, as some people would say in the journey of young people, they would say, look at me for a minute. Look at me. Are you or are you not committed to Jesus Christ? I want to know. Is it the, the normal response? Well, yeah, I'm busy and I love him and it really doesn't matter because it's all about his grace. I mean, it's his love for me that matters most. Or do you love him enough that you have sacrificed the things necessary to follow him? I will say this, if you've been following Jesus Christ and you haven't had to make sacrifices, then something is wrong with your service. Because we have been set apart. We are being sanctified. We're being changed and rearranged to be made something that everybody else is not. And without his help, we couldn't do it. And so here, Mark chapter 9 takes us on a quick journey of the importance of what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. Have you truly counted the cost? And can you say, no matter what the cost, I'll follow Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it is better for him to have a heavy millstone that is hung around his neck, and that he is thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, Throw it away. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May the Lord bless his word as we study it and I try to take you on a journey of what it means to be a disciple, to continue that process of what it takes to truly make the decision to count the cost and no matter what the cost is, is to be faithful. Many of us start on the journey but never continue. 
We all know what that is like. We've been given many stories about counting the cost and starting a house and not finishing or a journey and not concluding it or even a race and not finishing it. We're always replete with all kinds of examples of what it means to truly be faithful. And so let me take you on a quick exposition of what Mark says here when he begins by telling us the importance of making the right decision. He begins simply by letting us know the story is really about the little ones. Microids, the word that is used for the little ones here. Whoever causes one of these little ones, it's the only time Mark uses it. It's a reference back to the little ones, but you can't separate it from the phrase of the ones who believe. We are not talking about whoever causes a little child to stumble. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about whoever causes a little one that believes in Christ a little one who believes in him, a little one who is following him. And we're not talking about size as much as we're talking about the analogy again of the one who isn't much prepared. It's the one who is simple-minded. If I could put it this way in our own words, and some modern translations might say, if you cause one of these immature believers to stumble, if you cause one of these new followers of Christ to lose their faith, if you were to cause one of these new Christian disciples of mine to fall away from the faith. That's what he's talking about. The importance of discipleship is that we find ourselves dealing with what is known as the protection of the children of God. We don't want them to stumble. That is what he's bringing up to us right now. If we cause one of these little ones, the word is their scandalizing. You don't actually see the word of the word scandal in there. It's a horrible thing for us to cause one to stumble. It is a reference of a word that is used throughout the gospel to lead one away from the faith. I want you to think about the importance of this. Mark is giving us the story where Jesus is turning to his disciples and he's saying to them, it would be better for you as leaders, teachers, those close to me, to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned than to cause these new believers to stumble and fall away from me. Let me ask it this way. Whatever happened to simple Christianity? Whatever happened to the basics of our beliefs? We live in a time in which we only experience what Mark is saying is so true. For them, it was the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essene communities, and it was the scribes and the leaders of the laws, and it was the point that Christianity was taken to a sense of hoping and longing for a Messiah who would take away our sins and moving it toward more of an educational scene where only those who are educated and properly taught in the words would be able to understand what it is that Jesus wants for us. And maybe you're here today and realize it's no different in your life. That sometimes we find ourselves scared to go to Bible studies. Do you know why? We may not have the right Bible. And we may not have a concordance in the back. And we may not have the footnotes on the side. And we don't have the cross references down the middle. And we don't understand enough Greek to make the analogies of the words that are there. And the Hebrew is slipped right beside of us. And if I go to a Bible study and they call on me and I'm not able to make those references and to find the purity and peace in its original languages, then I'm not really worth anything at all. And I'm not really going to study and make anything of myself. Whatever happened to the Bible study that when someone came in your house, you greeted them and simply just said, hey, come and read the scriptures with us. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me let him do a work on your life like he did on mine without having to go through so much depth of everything. 
Now, I'm not against knowing the Word of God. Please don't hear me say this morning that we don't need the deep truths. But folks, we're causing the little ones to stumble. We're taking a generation of people who don't know the Bible, don't care about the Bible, and making it so hard to get into the Bible that nobody wants to come. Whatever happened to the simple truths of the Scriptures that were so easy to remember? How many of you still remember John 3.16? What about Romans 8.28 and 29? It's a big difference when you go from saying, God so loved the world... So now only the predestined, called, and sanctified make it. Just where do you start with your children? See, that's what Mark is saying to us now. There's a problem here, and it would be better to have a millstone. I don't know if you understand a millstone. I can only give you a closer analogy. If you've ever been to the Bible Museum here in town, they have a picture of one of the millstones that's grinding the grapes and the vines or the olives as it turns. And it's tied onto a big pole, and it's onto a big wheel that's cement, and only animals can turn it. For you would tie the harness to the animal, and they would pull that stick, and the hole in the middle of that stone would roll this big iron or big uh, cement stone around. It was so large that the only person we know of in Scripture that could ever do this was who? Samson. So heavy that when it was tied around your neck, it was no question you were sinking to the bottom because the chastisement that Jesus is saying and the importance of discipleship, you lead these people away from me, and it would be better for you to die and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. The importance of discipleship, we're not talking about pastors only. We're not talking about professors in seminaries. We're not talking about the great evangelists on TV. We're talking about moms and dads. We're talking about grandpas and grandmas. We're talking about the Sunday school teachers and the children's workers. We're talking about all those people who are leading those who are new in the faith to come to Jesus Christ. The importance if you lead them the wrong way and cause them to stumble. Rethink what it is that you're telling people. I know when we go to seminaries and colleges now, we call them sometimes cemeteries, not seminaries. I've heard it many a times. Because when you get there, you realize that some of the things they're teaching you are, where in the world did you get this? I've shared the story many a times. I went to Southern Seminary. I love it. I, I don't regret it at all. But I was amongst many liberal professors at the time. At that point in my life, I thought I would be a professor. And so I was working through some of the academics. And I sat under people like Molly Marshall Green, who thought God was a female. I listened to Paul Simmons and Stassen, who said, and I'll, let me phrase this for the sake of ears, that sexual alternate choices were biblical alternatives. Yeah, I sat under those that you would ask yourself, now where did you get this? And I remember the story, and I've shared it before, when Nolan, one of the pastors in my class, finally got fed up and stood up and said, I don't know where you get this, Dr. Stass. And he said, I'm so tired of you conservatives. And he started railing on him, and I've told the story. He said, I can't believe you conservatives. You just pick and choose all the things you want, and you don't even listen to it all. And I tell you wholeheartedly, when Pastor Nolan stood up in that class, he took his Bible, and he took several of the pages, and he ripped it right down. And he said, I'm so tired of you liberals not paying attention to half of it. 
And if you know the rest of the story, Dr. Honeycutt was fired. Southern Seminary went through a revamp. And what you have today under the leadership of Al Mohler was the result of the students who said, we're tired of being taught things that aren't in the scriptures. And I'm asking you, how many of you are teaching things that aren't in the scriptures? We come up with our own ideas, our own ways that we like them and how we want our children to act and what we want our church to be visioned under. And yet we've made it so difficult. We ask those to serve as just elders and I find myself at fault as many as as any of you. When someone says, hey, what does it take to be an elder? You would think the simple answer would be to be a leader for Christ, to love people and lead them to the Lord to discipline his children, to bring purity and peace. But you know what the answer for most of us is? Well, we want to take you through the Westminster Confession, the larger and shorter catechism. We've got to get you to understand Presbyterianism and the doctrines of how it comes. And we've got all this set before them that the average person simply says, if that's what it takes to be a leader in the church, what? I don't want to be one. Because what they'd really rather say to me, and I'm learning is, I don't care about all the deep stuff. What I really want to do is care about people. And I ask you this morning that if your heart is to care about Jesus' children, then you should be an elder. Because if you care about God's children, you will care about the truths. You will care about the scriptures. You will care about doing things in a peaceful way. But we've got to get back to the base. That's what Mark is saying. Jesus is telling his disciples, we've got to stay close to Jesus and keep it simple. But that's not it. He goes even farther to tell you this chastisement that God has for us. Isn't it amazing that discipleship is at such a cost that Jesus would chastise us in such a way that our eternal destinies depend on it? Don't take it lightly. Yeah, I'll be a teacher. Call on me when you need me, pastor. If it's once, twice a year, call on me. I'll be a deacon. Of course, I have a job and I can't really be there all the time, but I'll be a deacon. I'll be an elder. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so busy, I can't really be involved with the people, but I'll be an elder. I'll be a teacher, but I just, I mean, I don't have time to study. Guys, I could just go on and on. I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on the church. That today, if you ask the average person in the church what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it, they couldn't tell you. And you know how I know? Because statistics still say that the majority of people in church have never helped lead someone to Christ yet. I wonder if it's because we've made it too hard and we just don't simply ask, would you like to know Jesus? Would you like to pray with me and ask Jesus to forgive you? And then let Jesus have them. Our job is to give them those scriptures. But listen to what he says beginning in verse 43 and on. He changes the focus from that which is on ourselves, if you wish to say, or from others to ourselves. He focuses it now not on what we've done to the little ones, but what we've done to ourselves. Listen to how the focus goes. And if your hand now does it, don't worry about what other people are doing and don't worry about these little ones, but let's talk about you. Sin must not be pampered. The whole concept of using our hands, our feet, and our eyes is that we must immediately deal with the temptations that we're facing. We must immediately deal with the sin if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that disciples don't sin. 
but why would we continue if our eye is constantly looking at things that it shouldn't and is focusing on the areas of our life that need to be sacrificed, we should cut it out. I'm not asking you to literally go and do this, but the analogy is to do away with it, to do away with those sins. Make the decision immediately. Do not linger with it. Don't let it hang around. Don't let it just stay in the picture long enough to destroy you. You all understand sports probably as well or better than I and many of them. But it's amazing in my own life how many times our team would go up against another team that we knew was less equipped to play than us. Is that a way to put that? We almost knew we were better than them. But it would come up every time we would play them. It would become halftime in soccer and we would hear the same words. Why are you letting this team hang around? Just be done with it. Let's get ahead and then let's go home. Because the longer you let them hang around, what happens? They get excited, they get encouraged, they start thinking they have hope, and the next thing you know, you've just lost a game to a team that you know you should have never lost. And what am I saying? You just let that sin hang around long enough and watch what it does to your life. Because when the devil realizes that you're willing to let him just hang on, it's just a few pictures, it's just a few novels and books, the, the movies aren't really that bad, the conversation isn't that deep, she really doesn't look that good, it's not like she's really after anything, and I don't think he would really want to do something he's not supposed to do, and before long, the sin is lingering, and it's hanging on, and what Mark is saying is just be done with it. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, take out your eye. What he's saying is get rid of the temptation before the sin that so easily entangles us and keeps us from running the race of endurance. It begins to make sense in what Jesus is telling them. We've got to make a decision. Halfway discipleship doesn't work. I wonder how many half Christians we will see in heaven. And which half would it be? It makes no sense. And Jesus is saying discipleship is no different. How can you be a half teacher, a half parent, a half leader? You're either with me or what? Against me. Just how committed are you? That's what he's saying to his disciples. The struggle against sin Gosh, whatever it takes, count the cost today. Count the cost. Eye, hand, and foot, they're just wonderful analogies to all the places and the things that we see, do, and go. Think about it that way. All the things that I see, what needs to change in my life? All the things that I'm doing, what needs to be put aside? And all the places I'm going where do I need to stop so that I quit causing those new believers in Christ to stumble? For when they look at you and find the permission to do what they shouldn't do, that's what Jesus is saying to us. Just how committed are you? Nothing should prevent us. 
They're not life. That's what he tells us. It's coming to the kingdom of life. Do whatever it takes to enter the kingdom. We're talking about real life here, folks. It's about the life in this world or the life in the kingdom of God. One of them is real and one is not. One of them is fleeting. One of them is fading away. One of them doesn't last for eternity. And you have to realize that, that the one that truly matters is the life in the kingdom of God. He gives us the analogy of the importance if we don't make the right decision. Listen to what he says when he uses the verse for hell three different times. It's the word Gehenna. It's the word where the Hinnon Valley gets the description of itself. If you don't know the story, I won't belabor the whole thing, but outside of the camp in the Hinnon Valley, it was the place of Gehenna. It was the place where people used to bring their children and sacrifice the little ones to Malek. It was the place that people would bring the offering and the sacrifice and burn them up to the gods that they had in the valley. It was under some horrible teachings of Ahaz. And else than some of the leaderships in which finally kings come in to stop. And in order to stop all the sacrifice of the children in the valley, the kings turned it into a dump. And they covered the valley in trash and set it on fire. And they constantly fed the trash to the Hinnon Valley, to the place called hell, where the worm never dies. And it never dies because there's a constant influx of what's there. It's that place, Gehenna, this valley of burning up all the trash to overcome the sacrifice of human beings that we are now reminded it's the place we're going to go if we're not faithful in discipleship. Discipleship. This isn't a passage of salvation. This is a passage of, for those of us who are causing the little ones to stumble, for those of us who call ourselves leaders, who call ourselves teachers, who serve ourselves in the kingdom of God part-time, half-time, available time, begins to put us all on the spot when we begin to realize where are our true priorities right now? How much can we really accomplish? Hell's escaped this. We don't hear about it much because in the 21st century, preaching is almost a null to the concept of hell. People have watered it down, changed it, even taught it as annihilationist. We've got it to a point where now people aren't even scared of hell. It's the place that, hey, it can't really exist because God loves everyone, and why would a loving God do that to someone? And so we live in a generation where hell's not even spoken of. Hell's not even a threat and yet it's the place that eternity is pictured by. Do you realize that Jesus speaks more about hell than heaven in the scriptures? You go do your own study. It was the most important topic to Jesus even when he spoke because it was the place that he would be delivered to keep you from. He didn't come to do the right things for you to go to heaven. He came to do the right things to keep you from going to hell because that's where you were headed. Understand the true teachings of what it means to have original sin, to be born in sin, and to know where it is you're headed. Folks, please understand the importance of hell. How could anyone ever want someone to be in a place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the burning and the torment where the worm never dies? And how could it be that way? It's just a wonderful warning that those who are in hell must never truly waste away. 
Because how could the worm live if there was nobody there to feed upon? But for the bodies that are constantly suffering, they're a torment of hell. Because we didn't think Jesus' teaching was true. Have you counted the cost? Resurrection is not only for the redeemed, it's also for the damned. Both of them will be resurrected, and one will be sent to the right hand of the Father, eternity in his presence of joy and bliss, and one to the place where is the absence of the mercy of God. As evil as you think this world has become, I can't even begin to fathom what it would be like if there was no mercy at all. He looks at his disciples, and what's so amazing is the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 25 for the everlasting life is the same word that he uses for the everlasting suffering. So if you say everlasting life is forever, you must realize that everlasting suffering is forever too. Have you counted the cost? Because he takes us from the fires of this punishment now over to the importance of purification and preservation. Look at verse 49. He takes us to the story now where we realize Everyone will be salted with fire. It's the only one used in the Gospels. That's not in other places. There must be an important here, this salt that is good. We all realize that how does this salt and fire go together? It takes us to the temple understanding and courtyards where sacrifices were made to the Father, where they were burnt up in their entirety and the aroma went to God. And that sweet-smelling aroma is what pleased him. And along with it was the salt that was placed. Go back into the Old Testament Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, and see the importance of salt that was placed on the sacrifice. For the two to come together, it allows us to realize that salt was not only used for purifying things, but for preserving things. And he moves his disciples over from this area of punishment to now saying, if you truly are a disciple, you should be busy in the purification and preservation process. Let's stop worrying about punishment and let's start doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. Salted with fire, this aroma that is there reminds us of what Romans even tells us to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, to give ourselves wholly and entirely to Jesus Christ, to lay everything down before him and to let him have total claim of our life. Let me give you that sentence if I can this morning. I know you're a Christian and I know you want to serve the Lord and I know he's important to you, but let me ask it this way. Does he have total claim of your life? Does he tell you what your job should be? Does he tell you how long you should be serving it? Does he tell you when you're allowed to be done? Does he tell you what church you're to be a part of? Does he tell you the ministries that you're supposed to be in? Does he or does he not have total claim of your life? If he does, then you're that necessary element of discipleship 
used to purify and preserve society, to make a difference. The writers say it this way, we should be salt and we should be light. For those of us, when the Lord has control of our lives, totally consumed by God. Worthless, if not. And so we get to the reality of the close, if I can say this, and just the analogy, salt is good, but if it becomes unsalty, what makes it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Because when you move into total supremacy of Jesus Christ, and we move into the purity and the purification and preservation of society, we're the only ones that can truly bring peace. We are the only ones that have the truth, the message, and what is necessary to bring peace to one another. Take up our cross daily and follow him. A disciple, one who nurtures the faith of other believers. One who willingly forsakes the precious but injurious things to their faith. A disciple, one who has become salt and light for the purity and peace of this place. Where are you? Where are you headed in the next 100 years? To the place of the redeemed or the place of the damned? Mark says it's based on your discipleship. Have you counted the cost of what it truly means to follow Christ and to call yourself a disciple? Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we prepare our hearts to commune with you, we ask you to forgive us, to help us, to strengthen us, to truly make the trade, to make the exchange, Lord, as Mark has laid it out before us, your son has made it so clear to us that we must count the cost. We must make the trade. We must make the exchange. Our lives for his. Whatever it costs, help us pay it all. For you counted the cost and you gave it all so that we could come to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper here this morning, I want to invite you to participate with us this morning if you are one who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. If you have done that, then I invite you to participate with us. If you're participating in a church, one that practices the 
uh, the truths of the scriptures, the disciplines that come before us. You've been baptized. You follow faithfully in Christ. But maybe you've made the decision of yet to be baptized. The important thing is that you've made the profession of faith, that you've counted the cost. And before you'll ever be a disciple, you must first become a believer. You must be one who accepts Jesus Christ. As we share the supper in just a moment, I'll read some scriptures together, and then I'll invite you to participate. And if you've made that profession of faith, we'll ask you to commune with us. But before we do, say, would you please join me as we confess our faith before we share together? It's there in your bulletin. I'll read the question if you'll join me. And at the end of this, if the leaders would come to help pass out the elements. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament in which bread and wine are given and received as Christ directed to proclaim his death. Those who receive the Lord's Supper in the right way feed on his body and blood and thereby are spiritually nourished and grow in grace. They have their union and communion with Christ confirmed, and they publicly witness to and repeat anew their thankfulness and commitment to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. What are Christ's directions for giving and receiving the bread and wine in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Christ has directed ministers of his word to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. First, they should set apart the bread and wine from their ordinary use by the biblical declaration, thanksgiving, and prayer. Then they take the bread, break it, and give both it and the wine to the communicants, who, according to the same directions, are to eat the bread and drink the wine, thankfully remembering that the body of Christ was broken and given and his blood shed for them. If the servers would please come as we prepare to share together. I remind you that as we take it, the bread does not save. It is the element we just shared, that it has been given to us to commune together, to pass amongst, and to eat together. And so in just a moment, I'll read something, but I'm going to ask that as they come, we pray and then we'll pass. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will take this bread as we pass it, and mystically, Lord, spiritually, feed us, nourish us, and for those of us who are following you, increase our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we take and do that, Jesus met in Corinthians, and it says this. He says, in the same way, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so in the way in which he broke the bread, said, this is my body given for you, is the way in which we now take and pass out the bread. And so if you would please take one and hold it until we can all take together. Go ahead.
As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as he took that cup and passed it, so we have cups here that we would like you to take. Please take one, and again, as we pass them, please hold it until we can all take together.
As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would give your son, Jesus Christ, that you would give it all. And Lord, I pray here this morning that as you increase our faith, that you would convict us, you would reveal to us where it is we too need to make that ultimate decision and give it all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, if you would stand with me as we sing our closing hymn, hymn number 644, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, hymn number 644. Before I give you the benediction, let me remind all the men that's in the chorus right after Sunday school, you'll be meeting up here if you're able to stay and be a part of the practice. But if you would receive the benediction, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's children said, have a great Lord's Day.